Hey OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch. Just a few quick things before we start this episode. As a reminder, we've changed our hosting now to Podbean. That doesn't affect where you get the podcast and where you can listen to it, but it does affect the fact that we've lost all of our iTunes ratings. So if a few of you could go over and give a rating on iTunes, preferably a nice one, that would be really helpful to us. One listener told me that other than NPR, OnScript is one of his favorite podcasts. That's about the highest level compliment one can get, so thank you very much for that. We love hearing your feedback. Please put comments in the comment section or on Facebook, whatever you want to say. Uh, It's really helpful if you share the word. More good episodes are on the way, so stay tuned. If you're interested in our books that we interview on, please click through our links as that gives us a very, very small kickback. And with enough of you clicking through, Matt and I will be able to afford coffee when we get together in person. So we'd love that. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to OnScript. I'm Matt Lynch, hosting today and here with Ian Proven of Regent College in Vancouver, where he is professor of biblical studies. Ian is the author of a number of books, including the recently published Seriously Dangerous Religion, What the Old Testament Really Says and Why It Matters, and Convenient Myths, The Axial Age, Dark Green Religion, and The World That Never Was. You've got to love that title. Today we're talking about his book, Discovering Genesis, Content, Interpretation, Reception. Ian, welcome to OnScript. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Now, most of our listeners will not know this, but uh, Ian was one of my professors while in grad school in Vancouver, where I fell even more deeply in love with the Old Testament. And uh, Ian, I wanted uh, to just say, first of all, I wanted to express my appreciation for what you contributed to my faith and academic development and, and the constructive interaction between those two. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Matt. That's very kind of you. Very encouraging. Thanks. So I've uh, rattled off a few of your academic publishing accomplishments, but I'd like to ask, what's something about you that most people wouldn't know if they simply read your bio on the Regent website? Well, you know, um, at this point, I can't remember what's in my bio on the Regent website, but um, I guess what typically doesn't show up in bios like that would be things like hobbies, for example. Um, I'm a very keen fly fisherman, which is a good thing to be in British Columbia because fly fishing mecca here. And uh, for a number of years, um, I've also been a pretty serious soccer coach with uh, uh, in youth soccer. So at least a couple of things which may not be common knowledge, I guess. Yeah, great. And uh, I guess it's not really fly fishing season right now, or is it? I don't even know when. Oh, no, this, like... is, this is the this is the dead parts of the year, I'm afraid, between okay. uh, November and March, really, yeah. more or less. Yeah. And uh, what kind of fish are you usually going for? Uh, mainly trout, but we get some nice uh, salmon runs here mm-hmm. as well in British Columbia. Yeah, I remember going to the the fish ladder. I can't remember where exactly it is. There's a bridge right nearby it, swinging bridge. Uh, it's not. Yeah, the, it's, it's probably on the Capilano River, right? Yeah, I think so. And they have a, a fishery there where they 
um, the fish hop up, and I remember watching that, and it's it's both yeah. amazing and sad too when you see fish making it almost home, and then they can't make the jump. Um, but yeah, the whole thing is is kind of um, awesome in its own way, though. Yeah. Have you ever seen those photographs of the grizzly bears waiting on the waterfalls, and when the fish jump <laughs> up? They take them out of the air and eat them. Yeah, yeah. That's that's even more kind of sad. Yeah, uh, for the fish, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember. Um, I remember Lauren Wilkinson talking about the salmon forests there, where the uh, he he said that he, he was talking about the interconnection of of creation and and how the the bear eats so many salmon that they just split them open. And eat the the eggs inside, and then they when they go back into the woods, and their fecal matter then creates this incredible fertilizer from the ground, and these huge trees have grown up, and they call yeah. them like bear forests or something like that. It's amazing. Yeah, well, no, the the whole cycle is fascinating, and uh, of course the salmon die once they've laid their eggs; they don't mm-hmm. go back to the ocean, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that is very much responsible for the fertility of the whole region here. That probably ties into your reflections on Genesis at some at some point. Um, <laughs> so I was wondering if if you could say something about your your faith background and the role that that's played in your study of the Bible. Yeah, um, I grew up in church. I grew up in the Church of Scotland, so my family were church going folks. Um, and that faith became personal to me in my teenage years. And um, it's been a bit of a journey, up and down, but rocky sometimes. Um, but, you know, over the years, I've learned some, you know, some ways of integrating faith and life and academic intellectual work, and that's what I try to uh encourage my students to do as well to to integrate fully these various aspects of life yeah i think integration is probably a theme that i recall running through your teaching and we see that in your writing uh and in particular this book discovering genesis you've been on a kind of writing frenzy over the past few years or i'm guessing it's the result of years of of reflecting on these things and they're all kind of coming together right now uh but your your work seems to have landed you squarely in the book of Genesis as the generative source uh, for thinking through issues around philosophy, theology, comparative religion, hermeneutics. And I, I was wondering if you could give a brief explanation of why you think Genesis in particular offers such a, a critical vantage point for thinking through and integrating these different spheres of life and these different uh, disciplines. Yeah, it seems to me that Christian faith, and this makes it rather unlike um, various other religions and philosophies, Christian faith is really has a narrative shape to it. And the beginning of any story is really important for understanding the story that follows. And it seems to me the way that we read Genesis and understand Genesis has enormous visible implications for how we read the rest of the Bible and what we think it is that we're integrating with everything else. So uh, Genesis has fascinated me from that point of view for a long time now. And it's interesting that in the modern period, most modern critical 
method in the academy has actually begun in Genesis as well. So I think this fascination, this conviction about the importance of Genesis has been pretty widely shared, actually. Mm. And uh, your book, uh, Discovering Genesis, is in that sense not a um, typical intro book, which I think would include, you know, t- discussions of author, date, outline, uh, given outline of the book, text critical discussion, commentary. So, uh, and this book actually provides a, a short introduction to hermeneutics and criticism, which I I recognize as a as a kind of condensed version of the class uh, that I that I had with you at Regent. Uh, so you, you get a um, readers of this book will get a 20 page distillation of a, an amazing class. Uh, and then you've got theological reflections on major sections of Genesis and also a study of the reception of Genesis. So what led you to write this kind of book? And can you say about what you do in each major section? Yeah, well, the the answer to that question is actually remarkably mundane. Um, I was asked to write this book by the publisher. Uh, the publisher... Uh, is actually producing an entire series, discovering at Genesis, Exodus, and, and all the rest of it. And so the emphasis of the series itself is on reception history, so how the book has been read. So um, to a large degree in this book, I, I wasn't my own master in a way. I had a lot of freedom in how to write it, but the parameters were pretty much laid out for me there. Um, how I chose to write the section on Modern reading, though, you're right, it's very much a distillation of a lot of my thinking and hermeneutics uh, focused on Genesis as an example, really. Yeah, so uh, the the emphasis on reception history is something that's really gained ground in the, in the past, seems to have gained ground in the past few years, you know, with the major uh, encyclopedia of uh, reception history, the Bible. Uh, so, first of all, I'm wondering if you could describe what reception history is, and then also it kind of fascinates me, what is it that you think we're after when, we, when we're when we investigating how a book like Genesis was received through Jewish and Christian history? Yeah, um, reception history really is just a way of referring to how Genesis has been read in different contexts by different people persons or groups uh, through the history of interpretation. Um, Of course, why it's important will differ depending on what your bigger picture view, I guess, of the whole business of interpretation is. I think for many people nowadays who have given up rather on questions of authorial meaning and intention and so on, um, reception history is all that's left, as it were. So it becomes an interesting study but the interest is rather arm's length interest in a sense. It's just an interesting historical exercise. Um, for myself, though, I still believe that Genesis means to say things, that there are communicative intentions in the book. Um, for myself, um, the reception history is, is generative. It's rather fertile ground for helping me to think through what the book likely actually means. In other words, what you're guessing in looking at the history of interpretation is you're guessing other people's lenses 
And that's important because we are all capable of blind spots. We're all very much bound into our own times and places. And I think being aware of the history of interpretation is helpful in in helping us to examine our own assumptions and, and, and so on. I'm wondering if you'd be able to give an example of where reception history has proved helpful for understanding the book of Genesis. Um, it's difficult at this stage to think of one because, of course, I've been immersed in this for, for such a long time now. So I probably can't easily off the top of my head give you one example. But I do find the whole exercise of of looking at what people before you have made of text to be not only fascinating but also helpful um, and it just it, it gives you space just to reflect and to reconsider and to ask the question am I really sure that I I'm right in reading this or that part of Genesis in, in this way um, now, I mean, sometimes, of course, you you consider it all and you think that your first impression probably was correct. And um, I don't always find the history of interpretation terribly helpful. Um, for example, there's a bit of a tendency in both Jewish and Christian interpretation through history, a bit of a tendency to read biblical characters as heroic figures, heroically virtuous, for example. And, you know, quite a bit of that is quite implausible it seems to me uh, when St Ambrose holds Jacob up as you know the great example of the virtuous life it's a little bit hard to take yeah that's a tough one yeah um, and you know you've mentioned just a few minutes ago that you see the book of Genesis as a book with communicative intent and but at the same time you also see the book as a as an object with a history of reception within it, so to speak. So you have you have what we call the final form of Genesis, but you also see the book has early stories that were collected together into meaningful groups and then edited further, and then those group that body of literature was fronted by the prologue in, in of Genesis one to eleven, which itself seems to have been fronted by two creation stories. So you know, when we look at the book of Genesis, it has a history of reception and redaction. So which part has communicative intent if if the book was received and re-envisioned um, through time? Well, that's one of the great central questions, I think, that modern biblical interpretation has, has had before it and has made it its concern to, to try to answer. Um I don't set all of these things at odds with each other, though I'm rather of the opinion of Brevard Childs that it's the final form, I think, from a, certainly from a Christian point of view, reading the Old Testament as scripture, I think it's the final form that is the fullest version of communicative intent. And uh, this gathers up, I think, all of the ongoing intent through the ages. And, and I don't see this as as deeply in conflict in, in some way. Um, so as you know, in this book and my other work, I rather, I'm not really terribly interested in questions of origins in a sense. I mean, they're interesting enough as questions in themselves, but 
I'm much more interested in, in trying to work out what the book of Genesis in the form we have it now means to say. And that's uh, not merely reducible to the role of this or that individual, Moses or whoever, in the formation of, of uh, parts of the book. So, so whose intent are, are we looking at? Um, or do you mean, is that a theological claim that a final form has in t- communicative intent? Are we, are we talking about the divine author there, or or what? Um, I'm not talking of the divine author over against human authors. I, I'm sufficiently Protestant to, to believe that if we begin to drive a wedge between divine intent and human intent, that we get ourselves into all sorts of difficulties and, and uh, unmanageable subjectivism, really. Um, what I mean by communicative intent is the cumulative communicative intent of human authors and, and tradents, the people who pass on the tradition, really. Um, and I see no reason to think that, that it's possible to take a cynical view of process as if what the later people do is wildly at odds with what the earlier people thought. And certainly there's quite a bit of modern biblical interpretation that has taken that cynical view. Um, I don't take that kind of view, nor do I find it particularly plausible, actually. In what sense is it implausible? Because I, I think um, I think you're right that there is a, a strong tendency to to for biblical scholars as they look at the redaction history of the text to emphasize the degree to which each stage of the text represents a distinct theology and ideology, and that then you have a sort of diversity of perspectives that are, in some sense, at odds with each other? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, though, a a rather implausible view of the way in which communities of faith deal with texts and pass texts on. I mean, it, se- it would seem to me that unless the text was thought to be continually speaking along the same general lines, that it would simply fall out hmm. of use and, and become marginal. The, the very fact that we have these texts presented to us in, in what the final editors, I think, uh, could reasonably be expected to think was a coherent story. Um, uh, I, I find the the implicit view of the way tradition is passed on that's operative in some modern scholars' minds just to be unconvincing. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and and this ties into one of the challenges for modern readers, which uh, I, it, it seems like you were you were adopting the idea that we we can't simply appeal to, if we face a, challenge, a tension in the text, let's say, uh, a differing perspective, we can't simply appeal to a spiritual or allegorical interpretation to resolve that, whereas in Christian history, that's been a way of dealing with potential tensions in the text. What um, Would you say that we're kind of in a different place now? We can't go back to that way of of dealing with diversity or potential tensions? Well, it was already an issue of controversy in early Christian history as to whether people ought to be doing it or not. Um, If you read people like John Chrysostom, Theodore of Motsuestia, 
of course, they're very critical of the origin kind of school, the Alexandrian way of approaching tax. And St. Augustine is is far more um, straightforward than, than many people often seem to think. If you read something like On Christian Doctrine, you notice there his emphasis on paying attention to the rhetoric of the human authors in reading the biblical text. Now, admittedly, he does use allegory quite a lot in his practice, but in his theory, he's far more judicious, it seems to me. So it was already an issue of discussion in the early church. And I think that those who were most critical of it had had the better of the argument. It seems to me that that whole adoption of a, a Greek inheritance uh, in terms of, of reading texts in that way is um, there, there ought to have been a more critical view taken of that move is what I'm saying, even back then. I certainly don't think we should be going back to it for sure. Mm, yeah. Okay, there there are many places that, that I'd love to probe more deeply in your section on the theological significance of different parts of Genesis. So I'm just going to I'm going to pick a few uh, some of them the more unconventional interpretations that that you take uh, that I found fascinating. So uh, just to start out with one, uh, you said that in uh, in Genesis 2 the writer is less interested in describing Eden as a place but sees it rather as a state of being in the world. Could you unpack what you mean by re- referring to Eden as a, a state of being? Yeah, um, I suppose the the natural assumption of the modern reader um, is to read Eden as a garden within the world, as it were. But as I try to explain in the book, there are all sorts of internal difficulties with that, not least all the language about moving progressively east of Eden and, and, and all the rest of that and ending up back in Mesopotamia, apparently, um, so there are all sorts of internal difficulties with the with the kind of idea of a kind of physical geography um, in Genesis 2. I see that description more as a description of the world as it ought to be if everything was right. Mm. Everything was right relationally. Um, I think it makes much more sense to to read it in in that way. Yeah. So that that ties into uh, I don't I don't know if you've read. William Brown's book, uh, The Seven Pillars of Creation. And, you know, he talks about the, he, he p- picks out seven creation stories in the Bible. So you have Genesis 1, uh, the kind of global view, Genesis 2, the, the garden as a picture of the world, as you call it, mm-hmm. and then looks at the creation story in Proverbs with woman wisdom in Proverbs 8 and Book of Job, where you have creation story there, or Psalm seventy-four, the slaying of the dragon. So, so you have you have these different creation stories or fragments of stories in the Bible. So, what what would you say? What does that um, diversity of creation stories tell us about how they're meant to function? Uh-huh. Well, that's an interesting question. It takes us back to an earlier point of discussion because. I suppose the question is, what happens next once we have recognized that there are different ways of talking about creation? And and my answer to the question of what happens next is we read them all in the context of where we begin, that these other 
genres are embedded now in a grand narrative that moves from Genesis to Revelation and that we understand the various perspectives as telling us important aspects of the whole big picture. In other words, we we, we don't see these as somehow competing stories, but as stories, that, parts of stories that are all meant to contribute something to uh, the larger the larger picture. Um, of course, famously in modern biblical study, Genesis 1 has often been uh, really put against Genesis 2 as if they were saying different things. In a way, they are saying different things, but it seems to me that they're intended to be read together as giving us parts of the whole picture. Yeah, I remember uh, Bob Eckblad said something one time that, that really brought home how they can work together. He said, uh, when when you think you're dirt, when you, feel, when you feel like trash, you need to remember from Genesis 1 that you're made in the image of God. And when you think you're the best thing that ever hit the planet, you need to read Genesis 2 and remember that you're made from the ground, from the dirt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's a very, very, very insightful comment. And that's exactly the kind of that's the kind of constructive theological use of perspectives in the plural that I, I'm convinced we should be engaged in. Now, regard, regarding the curses in Genesis 3, uh, you had some, some fascinating uh, comments and discussion on that. Uh, so I'm just going to pick out a few points that you, you mentioned. Uh, first of all, you, you talk about the woman's pain in childbearing and, and say that, the pain as such is not new. So so the text actually says that her pain will be increased in childbearing. Mm-hmm. And then also regarding thorns and thistles, you say they probably already existed, mm-hmm. but uh, rather this is a way of talking about a kind of barrenness in the land uh, at point. So, so so what is that, you know, that, that kind of uh, demythology, not demythology, de-romanticizes the, the Garden of Eden um, as this perfect place, and uh, instead, uh, what does it mean if the Garden of Eden has pain in it and thorns and thistles? Well, indeed, which is a very profoundly important theological question, it seems to me. Um, I believe generally, just to step back for a minute, I believe that generally we have all too often imported Greek philosophical notions into our reading of the biblical story almost unconsciously. And so notions of perfection have entered in, and then we we fill the idea of perfection with our own content. So perfection must mean, must necessarily mean no pain and so on. And it, it leads to um, rather extraordinary views of, of how creation once was that when you actually read the scriptures you don't get that impression interestingly enough Um, so I don't believe that the world being good in Genesis 1 means that it was perfect in those ways that I've just described Uh, and I certainly don't think that um, pain is is, uh, always a bad thing or related to evil and uh, I discuss this also in Seriously Dangerous Religion, the way in which the pain that occurs when we place our hand near a flame is is a very good thing. And indeed, it's part of what's good about being a physical being. 
um, that we um, have this ability to feel pain. So I think we have to be awfully careful how we handle these important ideas. Yeah, and uh, I remember you talking in Seriously Dangerous Religion also about things like tectonic plates and the importance of those for the world, but yet they have uh, potentially dangerous aspects to them, right? Indeed. Uh, in other words, an awful lot of what makes the world the good place that it is uh, has unfortunate side effects from the point of view of our, of our physical existence. Um, one of the other examples I use is the fact that there is a law of gravity, which is a very good thing, but it does unfortunately mean that under normal circumstances, if you step off the edge of a, a cliff, that it's going to hurt. Um, you would have to imagine the original creation being an utterly, utterly different kind of entity. Uh, and, you know, to take a different view. And indeed, I think that without really thinking it through, many people do. Um, and I just don't believe that Scripture teaches us that that is the case, actually. Yeah, so in, so in other words, we would, we would have in Genesis 2 then a picture of the world that tells us almost zero about the world we actually live in because it would have to be so utterly different. Indeed, and if you ask yourself how many ordinary Christian folk uh, read the early chapters of Genesis, they read it as an account of the past. They don't tend to read it as scripture that speaks to their present. So it, it disables Genesis from speaking to us now as scripture in many ways, precisely because the world is apparently so utterly different we're no longer in that world and therefore it's hard to know what it's got to do with us yeah and i remember um I, we keep referring back to seriously dangerous religion but uh i remember there you talked about how th according to proverbs the tree of life is a reality in the present that one can grasp so mm -hmm. the pursuit of wisdom is the grasping of the tree of life which is something that can that the present we can we can actually attain uh, exactly so, and the same would be true of the tabernacle or the temple, for example, that the tree of life is represented there in the, in the branch lampstand, and and this idea that the tree of life always um, stands there before us, inviting us to walk that path, as it were, to choose life rather than death, in the words of Deuteronomy. So the rest of the Old Testament, um, if we move on to Genesis, another aspect of Genesis 3, you say that it doesn't interpret the events of Genesis 3 as a fall. Uh, could you explain an Old Testament view then um, on, is there a kind of massive primordial failure? Um, and, and, you know, does that contrast with New Testament perspective? Well, I, I, would, I wouldn't want to say that there's no fall. What I want to make a distinction between is the entrance of moral evil into human experience and to distinguish that from other things that are often attributed to a fall, which I don't think rightly should be. So I, my, big, my big point here is that I think the doctrine of the fall has been overused in various branches of, of Christian theology and used as an explanation for things it ought not to have been used as an explanation for. Um, 
So in terms of, you know, is is moral evil and all of the consequences thereof, is that somehow part of God's plan for the world? No, I don't believe it is. We we make these choices. We invite evil into our lives and, and all the consequences that follow from that are indeed grievous and, and, and terrible. Um, but when it comes to questions like was the was the entire nature of creation changed by the fall? I don't believe scripture really teaches us that, and it would be awfully hard to understand how how it could be as well. Hmm. Um, I'd like to kind of move on to the, um, the, the family stories in Genesis 12 to 50. And uh, I, I recently read Jonathan Sachs' book, Not in God's Name, I forget the subtitle offhand. I don't know if you've seen that, but he uh, he takes Genesis at its as a, his point of departure for discussing violence, reflecting on violence. And uh, something came up in in that book that I found really helpful, and I just wanted to get your opinion on. Um, so so previously, I had read the the stories in twelve to fifty along the the lines of primogenitor. Uh, subversion. So, in other words, the the younger subverting the inheritance rights and privileges of the older son. And we get this, and you know, Isaac is the promised and blessed son, uh, and not uh, Ishmael. Uh, the younger brother Jacob steals the birthright of the older Esau. Um, the older brothers bow down to Joseph. Jacob blesses the younger brother Ephraim rather than Manasseh. <clears throat> but but one of the things that Sachs shows is that in addition to that kind of subversion, you also have a, a sort of story of brotherly reconciliation driving through the book. And I was just wondering if you could reflect on the way that reconciliation and that kind of uh, trickster subversion work together in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I see that whole section of Genesis as really being a rather wonderful story of the way that God in in the midst of all of the ordinary frailty and wickedness and darkness of human life weaves a great tapestry such that evil is constantly being turned to good and I think that the the double statement by Joseph at the end of the book or toward the end of the book um, where he more or less says in two different ways the same thing when he talks to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Actually, I think that's the, the dominant theme of the entire book. Um, the Jacob Esau story is a particularly striking example, perhaps, where Jacob is a thoroughly disreputable person <laughs> from a highly dysfunctional family, um, that's on his bio. <laughs> yeah, that's his bio. Um, but but somehow God, by giving him experience of what it feels like to be tricked by somebody who's better at it than you are, his uncle, um, eventually ends up coming back into the land and struggling with God and then crossing the river for this reconciliation with, with Esau. Um the Joseph story follows on, of course, uh, uh, again, a continuingly dysfunctional family full of extremely shady characters. Joseph himself is a very ambiguous character, I think, 
and yet somehow God, in the midst of it all, saves the family from famine and reconciles everyone. And there is the the famous happy ending, which is is the whole kind of um, really the the overall biblical story, isn't it? Really, that, that there are happy endings because God is good. Basically, mm-hmm. I think that's what that's really what it's about. Yeah, it's a really helpful description. Uh, I, w- I want to switch gears for a moment here and uh, ask if you'd be up for doing a speed round uh, of, of questions. And you know, I've, I've done this once before, and the idea is that you have one minute maximum for each answer and preferably 20 seconds. You, you up for doing that? <laughs> I'm up for uh, giving it a go. We'll see how yeah. that happens. I, I find it's a helpful way to deal with complex issues. <laughs> All right, so, so here we go. So let us make humanity in Genesis 1.26. Early Christian interpreters see that as referring to the Trinity. Did they get it wrong? I don't think they're substantively wrong because God remains God throughout, and therefore God is triune throughout. So substantively they're not wrong. I think when they try to attribute that kind of community of intentionality, though, to the verse, that that would be a mistake. Should Abraham have said no? To God's request to sacrifice his son. I mean, he, you know, he he protested the destruction of Sodom. After all, I think the the story itself raises that question by juxtaposing the the two incidents. Um, it seems to me that Abraham was right to do what the good God commands him to do, but the dilemma is, would he have been right to follow through? And, of course, we don't know what would have happened had the angel not intervened. So it remains a dilemma in the story, I think. Was Joseph a good manager of Egypt's assets? Uh, Yes, but very much uh, on the behalf of the pharaoh and not in favor of the Egyptian population, which is why I said he was partly why I said he was an ambiguous character. What would you consider the most significant book in biblical studies over the last 10 years? Oh, my gosh, you've thrown me there, Matt. I'm the (laughs) world's worst uh, recommender of books. You could go back 50 years if you want. Well, I think in terms of changing the nature of the modern biblical critical discourse, Reverend Child's, um, one of Reverend Child's books, I'm not going to specify which would be the thing, not because they're perfect and not because um, I agree with everything he did. But in terms of paradigm changing books, I think you would have to put Childs up there, hmm. changing the, the conversation. Yeah. yeah, You're the second person to say that. So Mark Mark Smith also, also uh, said Brevard Childs. Interesting. And we're going to stay on books for a moment. Uh, uh, besides your own books uh, in the Bible. How about a book that's had a significance, uh, significant influence on you? Oh, Personally. my goodness. Uh, again, ask me anything about the Bible you want. Ask me this kind of question and I flounder immediately. <laughs> Maybe a novel uh, even. Um, a novel would be easier. Uh, the Les Miserables, the novel, not the movie or the musical. Um, I think it's just the most perhaps the best treatment of themes and law of law and grace outside scripture that's ever been written. And most people don't know the book, of course, unfortunately. And I would thoroughly recommend that people should 
it's very long. It's, it's a very, very long book, but uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah, and 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 if you if you're daunted by the book, you you can uh, maybe you would differ here, but I think you can skim some of the description of the sewer. Um, it goes into excruciating detail. <laughs> you can skip the description of the sewer, but don't skip the description of the bishop. Okay. The, yeah. the bishop in the musical gets about I don't know thirty seconds. The bishop in the book gets a quarter of the book, and it's really important, in fact, um, to to set the context for the remainder of the book. Yeah, my my wife kindly read the whole book out loud to me, including the sewer. Uh, we skimmed some of that. I, I should um, I should <laughs> specify. <laughs> She's like, um, we can, you know, we 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 dove in at points, and I I got the idea, but um, I'm sure other people would say it's absolutely critical. But uh, do you? Um, Okay, here's a uh, diving into the book of Leviticus. Um, do you consider it sexist that God chose an all-male priesthood? Oh, you know, sexism is a modern category, and it's such a broad kind of uh, label that attaches itself to so many things. I think it would be a better question would be, uh, well, <laughs> a better fundamental question is, do we believe God is good and wise and for us all, male and female? Biblical answer, yes. And then the subsidiary question is, does God do all sorts of things in the plan to bring everything to a happy ending that take culture and time and place seriously? Yes. And in that context, a book like Leviticus then begins to make a lot more sense, I think. Mm. What would you consider the story in, in Genesis that has had the most impact on your faith journey? Um. I think, like many people here, I suspect, like many people, the story of Abraham actually would, would be the answer there, um, precisely because it is calling Abraham on a faith journey. And I think it has struck many Bible readers in a very powerful way, just as it struck the author to the Hebrews in a very powerful way. Um, so that would probably be my answer there. And what do you consider the most troubling aspect of the Old Testament? What do you still wrestle with? Um, I, like many people again, I think the whole question of the level of violence, apparently divinely sanctioned violence, and the whole question of the necessity of that or the unavoidability of that, I mean, these are serious questions, particularly when you know the history of reception and you know that other people have quoted those texts to justify horrendous, horrendous behavior. Uh, it's right for us to to wrestle with these questions. It's necessary for us to wrestle with these questions. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> Just one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, gosh, can I choose just one? If you have more, go ahead and rattle them off. <laughs> Do you know, I think this is an interesting one. This I is think... ideas, not people. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea that we have to choose between the divine and the human in our talk about Bible reading, as if these things were antithetical. I think people on all sides of the Bible reading community make the mistake of thinking these are irreconcilable and, and utterly different. 
and they make mistakes on both sides of that, yes? So it's God's word, therefore it's not human, or it's human words, therefore it's not God's word. And it's just simplistic and really unhelpful. And uh, that would be a great idea to see the back of in 2017. It's not going to happen, though. <laughs> well, spe- speaking of which, I understand that you've got uh, a book on Protestant hermeneutics coming out soon. And is is that something well, maybe we will see the back of it in 2017? Is well, that something you're going to address? I'm going to argue in that book that we should because I'm going to argue that the notable Christians before us, a great number of Christians, including the magisterial reformers, did not make this naive mistake of setting the human and divine at odds with each other. And um, I think that that we in the modern period and now the postmodern period um, have made mistakes in these areas that our forebears did not routinely make, interestingly enough. So I do hope that book will be a contribution to a sober reappraisal of what Reformation hermeneutics means for us now. And, and is that coming out in 2017? It will be coming out in the early fall, I hope. it was. The book is designed to come out really to mark the 500th anniversary of the Wittenberg 95 Theses and so on. So. Oh, great. And who's that going to be published with so we can look out for it? Uh, once again, Baylor University Press, as with okay. my two of my more recent books, yeah. Yeah, great. And on the on the topic real quick before we uh, wrap this up uh, of divine-human interaction, there, there are a lot of ways of construing that. So you have Pete Enns' phrase that has, is quite memorable, that God lets his children tell the story. So there you have the interaction, but it's it's God, uh, it's more permiss- permission than uh, involvement, I guess. If I don't know if that's the right way of putting it. Then other people, divine hu- human interaction, much more direct, so that God is 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 actually involved quite heavily in at least the inspiring of the author and so on. Where, where would you sit on the, the, the interaction between divine human authorship? Well, I think in all matters of God's interaction with the world, we're in a realm where language um, fails us. In fact, thought fails us, really. I think these are innately mysterious, paradoxical matters. And it is easier, I think, to state what we shouldn't think than it is to state exactly what we should, precisely, mathematically and rationally. And when we try to, we tend to say things which then turn out not to be true entirely. So um, I think the difficulty of positively trying to to frame you know, the right way of talking about this, the difficulty ought not to be surprising to us. Um, and I think we need to see a number of things, not just one thing. Uh, the history of heresy really is the history of trying to oversimplify in a way. And so in many ways, you could see it that way. You know, Jesus is either human or God would be a pretty close analogy to this conversation, right? So you get docetic views of Scripture and you get, frankly, you know, views of scripture that have evacuated the whole business of real as divine inspiration. And these are the dilemmas, I think. These are the these are the the kinds of 
univocal statements that we ought to be trying to avoid. We have to say more than one thing, I believe, on these yeah. on these matters. That's a really helpful way of construing the relationship between divine and human authorship, recognizing the limits of what we can say, but also recognizing what we shouldn't say. Well, we look forward to possibly speaking with you about that book when it comes out. But in the meantime, I encourage our listeners to check out your book, Discovering Genesis. There are links to it on our website, onscript.study. Ian, thank you so much for speaking with us. This has been really fun. Yeah, great pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to On Script conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study.